welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Angus Story, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we'll be talking to Catherine Stocker. Catherine is a Social Democrat's local councillor in Dublin City. She's been a member of the Social Democrats since 2016, and since then has been involved in policy formation. She's sat on the national executive of the party, and in 2019 was elected to Dublin City Council for the Clontarf local electoral area. We'll be talking to Catherine about her experience of joining and building a new political party, working with other parties in the repeal referendum campaign, her involvement in policy formation, and her experience as a local councillor. You'll find the Social Democrats' sexual and reproductive health policy document in the archive, which we discuss in this episode, and you'll also find several more policy documents on the Social Democrats' website at socialdemocrats.ie. You can visit the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie, and there's a contact form there if you want to get in touch. Um, So thanks again to Catherine for joining us, and thank you for listening. Catherine, thank you for joining us. You've been a member of the Social Democrats now since 2016 and were elected a councillor in 2019. Um, Can I ask you how you first got involved uh, with the party? Sure. So um, thanks for having me, Angus Kieran. Lovely to chat to you. Um, I suppose it was just after the general election in 2016. And I don't know how much you remember of that election, but... It, you know, it was an election following five years of fairly brutal austerity and Fine Gael went into it with, you know, the slogan, keep the recovery going and then tried to buy people with promises to cut USC. And just the sheer naked cynicism of trying to buy people back with their own money after what had been done in terms of the, the devastating cuts um, in the years yeah. preceding it was... Uh, more than I could take. So um, I suppose like uh, I've always been very politically opinionated. I've always kind of, you know, had a position on whatever the issues of the day might be. But that was the point where I was just like, oh, these chancers can't be led away with it anymore. Um, so uh the soft dems have been kind of very strong on that narrative in the 2016 general election they've been very strong in kind of saying we we cannot continue to tell people we can provide public services and pay or and tax cuts and that everything will be hunky dory you know um because it's it's a big fat lie um so uh there was a notice up for my local branch having a meeting in the community centre right beside my house. So I thought, okay. just should listen. I'll rock up to this and see see what the story is. It's the first time I'd ever been to a meeting of a political party of, of any kind. So uh, oh. I know you've spoken to a lot of people <clears throat> who's, uh, who've been through several of the parties <laughs> of the left, but uh, this was my first venture into uh, party political engagement, shall we say. Um, so I wandered on down to that and, you know, we we all had a kind of a chat about what the SOC Dems were, were about and kind of whatever the issues at the time were. I, I can't even remember too clearly. Um, and the, then they were electing officers for the branch. And I suffer from a perennial inability to sit on my hands. Uh, so I ended up... Um, 
leaving that meeting as the vice chair of the branch. Oh, and I suppose this is kind of one of the characteristic things with the South Dems because it's such a very new party, like set up in 2015, five years old this month, literally. Um, and there were obviously people in there who'd been in politics for you know mm-hmm. a, a while or a long time and knew what they were doing and whatever, like Catherine and Roisin and Kian O'Callaghan here in my own constituency had previously been an independent and been in Labour before that. And, all of that. So, you know, th- there were that kind of wing of people who'd come from other parties or left Labour or whatever it might be. But there were also an awful lot of us kind of getting into the start of something new who had never been involved in politics before. And because there were no pre-existing hierarchies or pre-existing pecking orders because everyone was so new, it, it was literally possible to kind of walk in the door and like, yeah. as I say, I, I walked out of that meeting as the vice chair and then a handful of months later, the chair of the branch rang me and said, would you run for the national executive? So <laughs> now I literally, I, I'm going to be honest here. I had not the foggiest notion what the national executive of a political party does. <laughs> but it's very interesting. <laughs> Um, my mother ingrained what, what is possibly a very bad habit in me, which is, you know, say yes now, figure out the details later. Mm. Um, that's that served me well and badly, depending on the life situation. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so I, I ran for the national executive of the party and then I spent about two, maybe two and a half years on the national executive of the party, which I resigned from just as things were kicking off for the council, the local election campaign, just because I didn't feel I had the time to do both well, bearing in mind that I have two small kids as well and the the juggling act that that was that, you know? It sounds like in that sort of nascent party situation, I mean, it sounds like this didn't happen, but could, it could very easily have been that the experienced, because you had TDs to start with, which was an unusual position maybe for a party starting like that. Um, if you were invited, for example, to, to stand for the uh, Executive Council, they were quite happy for new members to have kind of a, a very direct involvement, that it wasn't that the experience, and presumably there's a cohort around those TDs who may be more experienced in other parties and so on as well, that... Uh, that they weren't constructing the system that that uh, the I suppose the the party process that they wanted that they were bringing new members in in a very direct way at that point then. Oh, definitely, yeah. Like there was there was a very um, deliberate effort, I think, to to build it as a movement and to try and make sure that the the membership were very engaged. And it was the membership who kind of drafted the constitution that went before everyone before being decided I wasn't the only brand new person on the Mm. executive. Certainly there were one or two more kind of long-standing political campaigners, but like there were a lot of us who'd not done it before, who'd come, you know, who were new to politics. And that's kind of true across the board. Like if you look at some of our councillors, like I'm thinking of Claire Claffey, who's our councillor in Offaly in uh, Burr, I think. And she's the only woman on the council with 19 men. Um, 
oh, and again God. she got involved in repeal and then got involved in the party through repeal someone like holly kearns down in cork holly got involved in repeal and then became involved with the social democrats and i think mm-hmm. you know in some ways obviously there are disadvantages to having a lot of people who are very new to what they're doing but in other ways there are huge advantages to it because there aren't kind of very set structures and pecking orders and all of those things that might be huge barriers for people to get past Mm-hmm. Um, in another party, you know, if you walk into a room full of people who all know each other incredibly well, who've been doing this for donkey's years, who have a very set mm-hmm. idea about how things should work, um, it can be much harder to feel like you can contribute to that or that you can put your stamp on it or that you can even kind of be part of it. Whereas I suppose a lot of our membership are young, a lot of our membership and a lot of our, our reps are women who maybe uh, there's very much a thing as a woman if you sit in a room full of men you will often get kind of talked over or you'll you'll have what you said reframed and re-offered by someone else and it's taken Mm -hmm. up or whatever because we don't have a lot of that it's a kind of you know it's a welcoming environment in that way Mm. um having said that like there's a there are disadvantages as well like our our kind of party fundraising effort has finally started to come together over the last year or so but Mm. on that first national executive like we knew we didn't want to be doing kind of you know Fianna Fáil style dinners in rural Ireland kind of whatever but we didn't know what the alternative to that Mm. you can't stand outside the church gates anymore like (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly. Um, although I, I did that a lot as a child with my father. So, you know, uh, I've, I've had that experience too. But, you didn't suggest um, it. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Um, like there were suggestions made that were very swiftly rejected. I think somebody at the point in time had suggested a kind of a, a tiered membership with additional benefits or oh, wow. whatever. And it oh, was uh, like, oh, good Lord, no. Good Lord, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, there were there were suggestions thrown out there that got rejected. But as I say, like it's kind of you're you're writing your own rule book as you go in mm. some respects, and uh, I think that probably has more pluses than minuses. Um, but it definitely has its share of both, you know. And the the cynicism hasn't sort of kicked in. Of do you, do you think it's solidifying now in terms of how the party functions now that you have more experience, you have a large number of councillors, large number of TDs, and. I think it is solidifying to some extent. Uh, I think, you know, there are still areas of the country where we're absolutely growing. There are still ways in which our practices are growing. Like our constitution was only drafted in 2016 and it's up for constitutional review this year so that we can kind of learn from the experiences of using it in practice over the last few years and kind of modify it in the ways that it needs to be modified. So I think there's a there's a, a cultural kind of fluidity, I would hope, um, yeah. that, that, you know, we've held on to. But, you know, I'm, I'm aware as well that that's, that's something you have to be continuously fighting for, that that's something you need to be kind of actively seeking because it's very easy to get into entrenched patterns or for somebody to seem like the obvious candidate for X, Y or Z just because they've been there for a while or whatever it might be. Mm. So, Yeah, yeah I suppose it, it, if that happens, it's very easy to alienate new members then and exactly the problems that sort of more established parties will have will start to, to settle in. 
Um, one of one of the campaigns you mentioned the repeal campaign. It seemed from the outside like that was probably a route that drew membership into the Social Democrats. Is that is that true? Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's that's very fair to say. Like, I definitely an awful lot of our candidates from the twenty nineteen local elections are people who were drawn in initially. Uh, into repeal and then we're looking for a political outlet to follow on from that you know I'm very wary of any party in any way shape or form trying to take the credit for what is the product of years of on the ground Mm -hmm. activism by people like uh, you know the abortion rights campaign and uh, terminations for medical reasons and all of those groups that put in the 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 years and the donkey's work Um, so uh, but we we certainly like I think they did a poll right after repeal of sort of political party versus how people vote and something like ninety eight percent of our supporters had voted for repeal you know so it was, it was a very very high yeah. proportion yeah. Um, and it it was a key issue for a hell of a lot of our membership um, at the time it's something that we were out campaigning on all across the country where we had had people active or had branches or that kind of thing um, and as I say it's something that a lot of our particularly our sort of women candidates uh, ended up kind of processing through into the party from but I mean I think some other parties had similar bounces or likewise had you know candidates come through from repeals so it wasn't an exclusively sock dem kind of a yeah. A, a factor. Dynamic, yeah. Um, it was, um, I suppose the repeal campaign was the first campaign I was involved in while part of a political party. And I probably went into it with an awful lot of naivety. Like, I was very new to being in a political party at all. And I think I was possibly less aware than I should have been of the sort of rancor and divisions that exist among the, the yeah. various. Uh, <laughs> parties of the left um, and I remember going to the first meeting of our local branch which was you know credit where credit's due called together by uh, John Lyons um, who formerly PBP now independent left um, and the room had kind of reps from all of the local kind of left uh, organisations so there was me and there was someone from the Greens and Solidarity and PBP and Labour and all of that jazz um, and we'd just about gone round the room and done a round of intro- in introductions when the rep from Solidarity stood up and started accusing the rep from the Greens of being insufficiently pro-choice. Um, and there was a bit of a barney across oh. the, the room about it. Um, because the Greens at that point hadn't kind of solidified their position. But, mm-hmm. it, you know, they, the, the rep was there and they were working hard and worked hard throughout the campaign but anyway that was the start of the division and um, there was one person there who stood up and said every single other person here is in a political party I am the only normal person here and I am telling you that this kind of shit is what's going to make people stand up and walk out of this room Um, so everyone was kind of put in their place Um, now uh, that's a 
that's a woman called Sabrina Ryan, who uh, later became my campaign manager for the local okay. election campaign. But, <laughs> so she, she didn't get to remain impartial. <laughs> it takes the neutrality <laughs> out of her position now. But for somebody external, yeah. yeah, because I think a lot oh, of yeah, people totally. within politics are going to be thinking, I mean, we're so used to knowing what the disagreements are between the parties. Mm. But it's a very internal conversation to someone who's doesn't care who these parties are and cares about the issue and wants to participate, you know? A hundred percent. And for the hundreds and hundreds of volunteers we ended up with, you know, a small proportion of whom would have any interest in the schisms of the left and who gets on with who and why mm, they don't yeah. get on. You know, they were there to campaign for repeal. It was a kind of single mm. issue objective that, you know, had people flooding in to support. But mm. if the first thing they see is kind of infighting, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's yeah. not positive. It's not a positive yeah. way forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, in fairness, in fairness, it was it was a brilliant campaign on the ground here in, in Dublin Bay North. And uh, I think we had a 74.5% yes vote and all of the parties did pull together yeah. not without some um sure uh, infighting but yeah. uh, that's that's best left on well look that'll happen inside the parties too you know, i'm sure <laughs> but a staggering result wasn't it i mean really and such a turnaround after so many i mean i remember canvassing i'm not canvassing because i was slightly too no I, divorce i remember canvassing for but not on the first or the 80s abortion referendum but the, the, the level of rancor, I remember from that and the fallout from that. And and even the left then was very split amongst itself within parties in a way that I don't think it was 40 odd years later or 30 whatever odd years later, it seemed to. But anyway, that's a side issue. Sorry. No, I think you're right, though. And I think in some parties more than others, uh, you know, we, we saw a bit of a reflection of that in the 2020 GE campaign as well. There was a d- division on the choice issue still. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't enormously rancorous, and I-, I was quite surprised by that. The first time I went out canvassing for repeal, and I'd been out canvassing at that stage quite a few times just for our local candidate and that, but um, I expected it to be bitter, I expected it to be nasty, and like I got one kind of unpleasant woman who, you know, told us she was making bunting for the babies and she'd pray for our souls and whatever. That was really it. Like the vast majority of people, even if they didn't agree with you, were not um discourteous. Yeah, yeah. So, you know Irish people, they find it quite hard to be rude. Good they could think you should burn in hell and they'd still be inviting yeah. you in for a cup of tea. You yeah, know? They, they might tell you on Twitter, but not to your face. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's Absolutely, problem. yeah. Um, so I didn't, like, I think the experience might have been quite different maybe mm. in rural areas. The, mm. I definitely know campaigners kind of in, in more rural areas who had a tougher time of it. But for... And I'm sure individual people, like I don't want to say my experience is mm. everyone's experience mm. because I'm sure it wasn't. But um, like I found it a lot less bitter and unpleasant than it might have been, which, yeah. you know, is a measure of how far we have come, I suppose, as a society since yeah. 1983. Mm. And, um, Huge change. You know, yeah. Huge change. Yeah. Beyond belief. Like, and it is, it's an interesting one, um, like even from 
the the whole abortion issue is something I'd, I'd always been interested in. I can remember being kind of 11 or 12 and the X case going on and mm. um, just the horror of that. Um, and I probably started actively getting involved back with kind of some level of campaigning on that in 2012, which was the 20 year anniversary of the X case and they had still failed to legislate. Um, there were demos at the spire about mm. kind of 20 years on, we still don't have legislation. And then later that year, the whole situation with Svita Halepanavar came. And yeah. So even over that sort of stretch of whatever, like 2012 to 2018, from the, the, the demos for the 20 year anniversary of the X case up to the repeal referendum, like the narrative shifted mm. so much in terms of, you know, and that, that was down to the bravery of people like the abortion rights campaign and, you know, quite simple things in some ways, like saying, mm. no, we're going to call ourselves abortion rights. We're not going yeah. to yeah. couch it. No, or... no, yeah. 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 So, I mean, they, the, the, the work that was done to kind of shift the narrative um, was enormous, you know? Yeah. It's funny, just when you're saying that, I had a friend who was involved in campaigning very closely on the issue for years, like for the, certainly for the, I think it's XDL, but from the mid 90s through to, uh, well, more recently, obviously. And we were having a discussion once in the early 2010s, and he said, I think it's time to go for it, like really go for it. And I was like, really? Because I think, <laughs> I think there was another dynamic, and I'm sure you can speak to this as well. You know, I don't want to say people my age, but people like who had been through that and felt beaten down by it. And also that sort of sense of, well, they beat, you know, there was this beating on this and there was that and this, the room for progress. Is there any room for progress? And you saw, I think that was true of the marriage equality referendum as well. There was sort of maybe a little bit of salami slicing at the beginning saying, OK, well, we can do this, but can we do that? And I, I did you have yeah. did you have a sense of that yourself? Like maybe that's. The infusion of a new generation and new generations coming in allowed people maybe to push it forward even better. I think I did after marriage equality. I don't think I did before marriage equality. I think before marriage equality, on the on the abortion stuff, I still thought like you know we we had that twenty thirteen bill that you know caused uproar over very minor amendments. Um, it seemed like there was an awfully long way to go to get to the point where we'd have any kind of, you know, free, safe, legal. Um, so, yeah, I think I think a lot became visible from 2015 um, up to, uh, you know, up to up to then. Um, and I think, you know, we, we owe the people who pushed for that a huge debt of gratitude, you know, people uh, who campaigned through the years like Ronnie Healy and Alva Smith and all the various people who, you know, forced Irish society kicking and screaming yeah. um, out of where it had been, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you have to remember that it was it was a long battle. I mean, the like you're saying, that the experience of, I mean, people who were involved in 82, where all you're fighting is even just to avoid an even worse constitutional yeah. situation and putting all that work into something that they eventually lost like that is is going to knock your yeah <laughs> your think, sense of hope was, a little bit on these things. It, yeah. it was like divorce. It took it off the table for a generation. Well, not a generation, but it took it off the table for years. 
and, and that was definitely yeah. a divorce as well. Like with divorce, we didn't get another crack at it for the best part of a decade. We, we have to remember not all our referendums have been glowingly positive, though. Like we still have the, uh, the what was it, 2004, the 27th Amendment, uh, uh, removing oh, yeah. Irish citizenship yeah. from children born here. Thank you, yeah. Michael McDool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like, I, yeah. I mean, I know there's a stretch between that and the later marriage equality and repeal, and I, mm. I kind of wonder how that amendment would have fared in this Ireland, kind of, mm. fifteen years later. Like, would it be would it be worse or would it be better? Like, we we do have the sort wow. of emergence of this kind of far right entity, but then we have a very large swathe of people who are one would hope a lot more progressive so mm. it's, um, you would hope like I don't remember a huge campaign around that I would have been in mm. my early 20s I think and mm. I don't remember big teams of people out canvassing no. maybe it did happen but I've no recollection of it if it did and I, I would hope if we had similar now that you would see teams of people coming out to I, I, I think there was engagement, but I, it's funny. It's almost like, and this brings me to another question. This makes me think of something else I wanted to ask you, because, but not just now, maybe later on, but it's just, it's like, it's almost like there's more of the left now than there was even in the early 2000s. And it's... Oh, but there definitely yeah. is more of yeah. the left now. Like, I don't know if you've seen that graph that was done. Is it Michael Taft, mm. I think, did a very good graph of... Um, Kind of, he's taken all the left parties, and we can argue about who is and isn't of the left, and yeah. whether they're sufficiently left and whatever. <laughs> but he's actually taken all the left. Yeah, look, if they're, if they're on our timeline of the Irish left, then they're on the left. That's that's my rule. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I don't know if you've seen the graph, but like yeah. he's basically got a line that's going downwards for the combined Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael vote, and a line that's going upwards for the combined left vote in whatever incarnation mm. of the left you want to to look at it. Um, mm. So I think there there objectively is more of the left, and I think we are on the precipice of our first ever national left government. If if the cards align in the right way and things still look the way they do in four or five years' time. Or now, two, you know? or maybe one, who knows the way things are going. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I think this government, I'll be hung for this at some point, no doubt. I think it'll last because with all the ragtag independence attached mm. to it, it, uh, it has a substantial enough majority to basically just kind of blow past all its very many banana skins and yeah. uh, like I think you're right um, I, like who would have thought the the Fianna Gael propped up by Fianna Fáil confidence and supply of 2016 would last four years if that can make yeah. it through four years then you know this one can yeah I, I, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon you know Hmm. On that cheerful note. Yeah, let's stop now. <laughs> no, 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 no. We'll keep going. Um, in, I mean, one of the one of the things that I think we're very interested in because we're actually putting we're swiping one of your documents, uh, Social Democrats' documents, um, from the party. We're just like literally taking the PDF and putting it in. We're putting it in the week this podcast comes out to have a Social Democrats document in the archive because so much Vesti stuff is understandably electioneering or campaigning material. And we don't really cover that side of things. We tend to do the policy or the 
internal politics or um you know material about parties and so on and so forth as distinct from campaigns it's irish election literature which does more electoral mm -hmm. stuff so we've been we've been scouring the policy documents on the social democratic website and you yourself were involved in policy as as many social democrat members have been yeah, and I think um, in particular, one document in particular, I mean, do you want to talk us through perhaps a little bit about that and policy formation inside the SDs and how that works? So the policy I was most um, involved with was the sexual and reproductive health policy, um, which I suppose we published in the run up to uh, repeal. And mm. I probably, we first started talking about kind of pulling that together in maybe late 2017 it, it it was a long time in the gestation between the very many kind of processes that went through but um i suppose for us it was important to have a policy that wasn't just a stance on repeal and for me in particular i you know choice is absolutely about the choice to have an abortion if that's what you want to do but choice is also for a lot of people about the right to have a family and we're one of the only states in europe that doesn't provide any financial assistance to couples struggling with infertility which given that one in six couples do struck me as extraordinary um our, our maternity care services are vastly lacking like something like a third of women don't get a standard anatomy scan or didn't at the time that it was written um they they published a, a 2016 national maternity strategy but like it suffers from the same implementation deficit that the vast majority of government policy does so nothing has actually really happened since then mm. um so there was the failures around kind of our maternity care there was the stuff around IVF, there was also a lot of stuff around, you know, our need to teach consent in schools, our need to teach kind of body positivity and sex positivity in schools, our need, our need for a kind of a grown up discussion. Um, you know, I think for a while when we first put that document out there, the hashtag we were using was let's talk about sex um, because it's it's something, you know, Irish people kind of shy away from, you know, yeah, and uh, that we shouldn't be so so reticent about. That document probably didn't go through the standard policy channels, as in we have a policy committee and there is a chair of the policy committee and the policy mm. committee is elected by the National Council. And um, most of our other policies will have worked their way through that process. Um, the sexual and reproductive health one was born more of kind of discussions initially between myself and Catherine Murphy and Catherine Murphy, our party political director, uh, Anne-Marie McNally and yeah. a, a few other members. And we put together a draft of it. And then it's something that an awful lot of the membership would be very um, passionate about so i mm. suppose the draft was brought to a thinking and then from the thinking onwards it was further refined and then it was circulated to all of the membership and all of the branches had to come back with their feedback and so it went and um, it didn't go oh. through our usual policy forming channel but it did go through an extremely democratic process yeah. of being reviewed by mm. pretty much every single member in the party yeah. um so that was an interesting kind of a um, an approach. But as I say, there, there is a kind of a more general policy committee that uh, that works on 
developing policy and you know is obviously working with the TDs and the representatives and all of that and then channeling the members positions and they've done policies on kind of everything from biodiversity to I think you know they're they're looking at some of the more um you know uh, policies around kind of harm reduction and decriminalization and stuff like that and you know assisted dying and all of those kind of issues are being churned through that process at the mm. moment to wow. see where where it leads us you know that's uh, i suppose the thing about the soft dems is um and this this probably comes from catherine and roshan's leadership but also from the nature of the membership like you know essentially um would would be insulting to others if i said we have a very high quotient of nerds that i will include myself in <laughs> a variety of political nerdery um, so it's a very policy focused party and like again i don't think that's true that we're the only people that's true and i think that's true of a lot of the the greens and whatever as well but um there's a very very heavy focus on kind of policy and the need for policy to be evidence-based and yeah. kind of long-term in, ter in terms of its approach. And we would have a very strong belief that an awful lot of what's wrong with this country is that, you know, decisions are made on the basis of the next general election, not the next generation. And mm. that we need that sort of long-term evidence-based thinking to, you know, tackle what we're up against. Yeah, I mean, certainly it was very strange, the AHR stuff, having some uh, experience of that myself. You know, it's fascinating to see a party which is coming out and talking about supporting it. Also, another thought that struck me was, because it's 2018, yeah, it was, it was just pre-repeal, sorry, it was 20, yeah, it was 2018, was it? Yeah, just pre-repeal. Uh, some of the issues that then come from repeal, for instance, and I was thinking of exclusion zones around maternity hospitals, obviously those were almost problems that weren't foreseen at that point, and and now we have the outworking of that, which I presume will come into a new document in some way. Would that be correct? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, obviously, we need exclusion zones. We need national legislation on that. A few of our councillors have tried to push that through at council level, through bylaws. I think uh, Jennifer, when she was in Wicklow County Council, tried. I think um, some of our Kildare councillors have tried as well. Um, and it hasn't really worked on a local level. I suppose that was an attempt to circumvent the lack of action at a national level. Mm. Um, I mean, we do we do need exclusion zones. I would like to see the government act on it. You know, it's kind of... Um, I, I don't... Um, I worry about this government. I worry about all the very many anti-choice Fianna Fáil heads in there and um you know uh what will happen with the legislative review which is due i think three years into That's the legislation right. yeah. so um yeah, of course. Uh, you know in in a good world we would be pushing forward in that legislative review like there are still people getting diagnoses of severe abnormalities who are having to tra travel to the uk there are still people who don't quite meet the fairly arbitrary cut off periods who are having to travel to the UK, all of that. So, I mean, you would hope, well, you'd hope that exclusion zones are provided for long before we get to the legislative review process, but I wouldn't hold my breath now.
what are the challenges of being a counsellor? I don't think I fully realised before becoming a counsellor uh, how limited the power of a counsellor actually is. So the number of reserved functions that we as counsellors have, as opposed to the decisions made by the executive, is actually very, very narrow. Like we can vote on whether to dispose of land um, you know, we we have some say over some planning processes, and um, I mean that's largely it. Like the rest of it is kind of representative and advocacy. And if you don't like something the, the management are doing, you can kind of write to them a lot and complain and try and kick up a fuss about it and try and get it stopped that way. But like, we actually have very, very, very limited power to influence what's going on. And I mean that's true of all Irish local authorities. We have the weakest local government in Europe. Um, you know, and in other European countries, local government looks after areas like childcare, local government looks after all kinds of services that we have sort of no control over. So, you know, in an ideal world, I'd love to see massively kind of beefed up powers for um, local authorities, both in terms of raising funds and in terms of decision making and a directly elected mayor for the city of Dublin. You know, it would be great to have a role with actual authority. Like if the mayor had the powers that the chief executive, who is, yeah. you know, this is no criticism necessarily of the current chief executive, but the role is one which is not democratically appointed and has enormous power in terms of what our city looks like and how decisions are made with regard to it. So. Um, yeah, I mean, those those are kind of the challenges, you know. The, hmm. you, I mean, so, you want to achieve things you can't achieve because you literally do not have um, decision-making power over them, you know. And people expect of you that you do. The, the, the general public have very little understanding of how kind of constrained the, the power of councillors mm. is. So they think that you will be able to stop something they don't like or um, make something happen that like the chances are you're going to get the response. We don't have funding or the executive have decided against that or whatever it might be, you know. So it's, um, yeah. it's frustrating. I, mean, I think in the public perception, the, the executive is quite an invisible kind of entity isn't it and and there's a strange history of of um corrosion of local government in in ireland um well for various reasons in Fianna Fáil in the 50s and things but um do you think there's any momentum either within your party or in or in general within um within the others as well behind a stronger kind of local government um well certainly in the SOC Dems we're forming a policy group at the moment to draw up a policy on kind of local local authority powers and how we should be campaigning for reform around that and what kind of reform we should be campaigning for. Um I I know the Greens also have a policy on a directly elected mayor. We have a policy for democratizing Dublin, which essentially suggests that we should um a policy discussion paper, shall we say, uh, that we should amalgamate the four Dublin uh, local authorities into one local authority under a directly elected mayor with a kind of more limited number of representatives and then kind of sub-area committees under that, um, but that would have actual powers and that, uh, you know, where, the, where a directly elected mayor was then answerable to a municipal council. Mm -hmm. um, 
And as I say, we're kind of bringing together a policy working group at the moment to kind of further develop and expand that. Um, we'd love to see it pushed forward. Like, you know, these are very well-worn thoughts, so they're not unique to me and they're, they're not in any way, uh, I suppose, blazing insights. But, you know, an awful lot of what's wrong with Irish politics comes down to the lack of strength at our local government level because then you end up with an endless number of backbenchers who are essentially kind of elevated councillors kind of petitioning for their own localities rather than working on legislation etc etc like as i say they're, they're not thoughts unique to me but they are very definite problems within our political system yeah i mean the fact that people go to their td and not to their councillor in a lot of instances is sort of proof mm-hmm. of that really isn't it Although, uh, yeah, I suppose and, it's not... and also the fact that people believe that either a TD or a councillor mm. can have influence over certain areas. Like, mm, mm. people present to me, like, okay, so you asked me earlier about the challenges. And one of the very challenging things is that people present in terrible situations who do very obviously need help, who should be better supported by our social systems. And you can't necessarily do anything to help them. If somebody presents to me and they've been on the waiting list for housing for 10 years, and yet they're still number 257, and that's not an improbability or an impossibility by any means. Mm-hmm. Like, I can I can arrange to meet that person. I can go into housing allocations with them. I can get housing allocations to go through with them. Like, these are the areas you're down for. Would you rather be down for more areas? Which I, I can tick a few boxes that potentially reassure them in some way, shape or form. But, you know, I can't and nor should I be able to get that person a house, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and our system would be very broken if that were the case, if it mm-hmm. were a matter of, you know, petitioning your local councillor or TD or whatever it might be and getting bumped up the list. Um, but definitely people are given the impression that that's how things get done. And some parties and some councillors and some TDs perpetuate that impression intentionally so that it looks like they have done things like, you know, I got you your house or your medical card or whatever it might be, whereas in actual fact you are entitled to that thing, you know. Um, But it is very frustrating that you're dealing all the time with failures of national policy and how they impact on people's lives and you're not necessarily in a position to change or alter that you know yeah Um, yeah. that's gloomy (laughs) (laughs) well yeah and then and then sometimes sometimes the opposite is true in worrying ways like i won't go into the the intricate details of this but when I was first elected I was contacted by a constituent who'd been having trouble with social welfare over a long period of time in terms of getting the payments she should have been getting Mm. and this had been going on now for maybe 18 months like of of back and forth and back and forth and she'd get some payments and then it'd be cancelled and would go off again and I wrote a letter of complaint to the Department of Social Welfare and mm. within 48 hours she'd been called to say, you know, actually we owe you insert uh, large sum of money here. And oh like, now maybe that was entirely coincidental, but if it wasn't coincidental, and it probably wasn't, it's quite worrying, again, yeah. it is absolutely wrong that yeah. 
somebody's life is determined by whether a counsellor or a TD intervenes on their behalf to, yeah. to advocate for Absolutely. them, you know? Mm. Mm. No, yeah, I mean, it's a worrying situation for any kind of mediator to be required in, in how you interact with the state, you know? I mean, and that's... that's um, yeah something they should be able to do and understand directly themselves and um, shouldn't need explaining that you got caught by loophole x or whatever you know mm. <laughs> yeah how do you feel uh where do you think things are going to go next i mean in a sense like you know there's a lot of areas you can address but i mean you know on one level this is a broadly social democratic moment and you've got a situation where there seems to be a bit of social democracy in a lot of parties at the moment, if you know what I mean. But some are in governments and some are not in governments. And what hap- what what happens next, in a sense? And is there does that moment actually exist? Well, um, when you say about it being a broadly social democratic moment and, and the social democracy in a lot of parties, I'll I won't I won't name who it was, but I was sitting in a meeting with. Uh, various other Dublin City councillors negotiating an issue uh, a year or so ago and uh, I said something along the lines of as a social democrat and whatever the follow-up of that sentence was Mm. and Athena Fawler turned around to me and said you're not the only social democrat in the room so uh, definitely um, he or she was a friend of uh, Bertie O'Hearn, the socialist, I presume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it amuses me definitely that kind of, well, Fianna Fáil in the, the early 2000s in their, in their sort of PD alliance incarnation yeah. were anything but, and uh, <laughs> have, have now kind of twisted themselves around to a social democratic uh, sales pitch. Um, I mean, you would hope that the pandemic has been transformative. You would hope mm. that we can see that it has exposed the weaknesses of our public services, whether that's a two-tier healthcare system or um, the number of people we've had in emergency accommodation and homeless and unable to you know, get housing in a whole variety of ways, um, whether that's the kind of situation we've seen where people with disabilities have been largely left invisible throughout this uh, pandemic and families Mm. have been left hugely struggling to cope with that. Mm. Um, Our our nursing homes and the privatisation of our nursing homes (laughs) and the catastrophe Mm. that that then presented. Um, you, You would hope that it is transformative. Like if you look at something... Okay, I'm going to get very historical on you here, but say like the Black Death resulted in the freedom of the serfs, basically, because so many people had died out that um, those who remained had greater bargaining power, essentially. You know, if you look at um, the kind of transformative momentum of a pandemic in that sense, you'd hope some things would change. The programme for government as it stands does not fill me with hope for that change. Uh, Like, for instance, there's a line in it that says they will consider the funding for implementing Sloucher Care in the 2022 budget, which, Hmm. um, you know, given that we are now in 2020 and this is a plan that was agreed by all parties three to four years ago, is uh, certainly not moving with speed. Um, and likewise, I would worry about the the approach to to housing, the approach to a whole variety of issues. So, yeah. 
I mean, are we in a social democratic moment? Um, I I would like to think we are, but I I have my doubts. I think I think Fianna Fáil needs to work hard to make things happen to rescue themselves, and I think some of that may look like social democracy, but I mean. Again, a lot of their plan for housing is to enable people to buy more private housing, mm. which mm-hmm. you know we know is not actually the solution to the problem. So it's a, yeah. a government subsidised affordable housing scheme. It's bumping up the help to buy scheme. It's yeah. you know it's doing all the things bar providing actual public housing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you know I would be concerned that you know it's it's not going to transpire in that way. But I would be very hopeful that we are on potentially the precipice of our first ever government of the left since mm. the incarnation of the state. Um, mm. You know, so glass half empty, glass half full. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like okay. in in a way, is it very cynical? No, cynical is the wrong word. Um, in a way, you would hope they don't do just enough to make it seem like things are all right again without mm. actually mm. solving any of the problems. And that's the big yeah. fear, that they'll kind of gloss over things and throw money at them and not yeah. tackle any of the underlying causes. And people will feel like things are a bit better and will therefore continue to support the kind of more traditional parties. And, um, you know, that... That is a concern. You would, you would hope that the uh, experience of well, ten, twelve years ago, which they astoundingly did get away with in sustaining a status quo that wasn't functioning, will uh, would be harder for them to manage this time. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is again not to harp on it too much, but. Uh, this is the first time we've ever had an opposition entirely of the left. You know, we've mm. never had mm. that sort of proper divide in our Dáil, um, you know, because you've always had Fianna Fáil facing off against Fianna Gael or mm. vice versa, which, you know, is not really any kind of opposition. So, I mean, hopefully the fact that we have a sort of a defined ideological divide in the Dáil and we can present some kind of unified unified opposition and kind of an alternative government is, the is a plus yeah. yeah um now i'm not i'm not having said that like Sinn Féin teamed up with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in the Dáil the other night as the mm. um, the last mm. effort of the outgoing Dáil to bump all the other opposition parties further down the speaking yeah. order so yeah. um <laughs> work in progress <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not saying like I'm not saying we have delivered left unity quite yet, but uh, hopefully we'll get there one way or the other.